Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to the book of Exodus. We use these excursus episodes to dig a little deeper into something that we've encountered in a particular book of the Bible that we just didn't have the opportunity to deal with adequately within the time constraints of a normal episode. Most of our episodes here at End of the Word are between 15 to 20 minutes in length. So sometimes you just have to stick a flag in something and come back to it later. And that's what we're trying to do here. In this excursus episode, I want to come back to the whole issue of Sabbath a concept we first met back in Exodus 16. In verses 22 to 26 of that chapter, it says, On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none." Now, not only is that the first mention of the word Sabbath in Exodus, it's also the first mention of the word in the entire Bible. In the creation account in Genesis, it mentions God resting on the seventh day, using the verb form of this word. But this is the first use of the noun Shabbat, meaning this seems to be the first time that a connection is made between what God did in Genesis and some type of formal religious observance for his people. So, for example, in their commentary, Kiel and Dillich say here, It is perfectly clear from this event that the Israelites were not acquainted with any sabbatical observance at that time, but that whilst the way was practically opened, it was through the Decalogue that it was raised into a legal institution. Closed quote. So the principle or the concept is introduced here, and then later in Exodus 20, it is codified into law. And that is interesting in and of itself. The principle of Sabbath preceded the law of Sabbath. So even if the law of Sabbath were to be subsequently fulfilled, one might imagine that the principle of Sabbath could in some way remain in effect. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves. The point is, this is the first time that we meet the idea of a seventh-day solemn rest for the people of God. Now, the idea here in this story in Exodus 16 is that the people will gather manna for six days, and then on the sixth day, they will trust God to supply enough for that day and the day to follow. The sixth day will be the only day they're allowed to gather more than a single day's supply. On the sixth day, what we would think of as Friday, they're allowed to gather a double portion so that on Saturday, the seventh day, they can enjoy a solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So in this initial story of Sabbath, there are two ideas that seem to be in the foreground. First, there is this idea of solemn rest. We might say rest for a purpose. And that purpose clearly was to remember and focus on the truth of who God is and to a lesser extent, the truth of who we are. 
J. Alec Montier has a fabulous quote about the purpose of all these laws that we meet in Exodus, but it applies really well to the law of Sabbath and to the principle of Sabbath that comes even before the law of Sabbath. He says this, The law of God reflects the character of God. It is the likeness of God expressed in precepts. And obedience to the law of the Lord triggers in us the image of God, which is our real nature. In other words, we live the truly human life when we obey the Lord's law, closed quote. Are you hearing that? Now, as I said, that applies to to all the laws generally, but it really fits this law, this principle of Sabbath to a T. Because that's really what the Sabbath is all about. It's about pausing from our work. Because actually, it's not our work that makes us truly human, right? I mean, ants work. Bees work. But humans aren't ants. We're not bees. There is more to us than just our work. And so actually, we have to pause from our work in order to remember who God is and in order to remember who we are. So that's the first idea that is really foregrounded in Exodus 16. The second idea in the story has to do with trust. The story of the proto-Sabbath is told inside the story of the manna. Every day, people gathered up a single portion of manna. They took what they needed for the day, but no more. If they took more, it started to rot overnight. So they had to trust God every day to supply their need. They couldn't store up the manna. They couldn't freeze it. They couldn't dry it. But then now, all of a sudden, God is saying, on the sixth day, gather up a two-day supply. And somehow, in a way that is not explained, God will cause that to last for the whole 48 hours. It won't go bad this time. Well, to state the obvious, obeying that command would require a fair amount of trust. If God didn't deliver on that promise, then your family, your precious little ones, would go hungry. And of course, that's the point. The Sabbath principle is a test of our trust. Where do we truly believe that our life and security comes from? Does it come from our efforts, or does it come from God? See, the Sabbath principle requires you to put your faith to the test once every seven days, and that's pretty neat. Remember to quote Matir again, there is no such thing as an untried faith. And, And the thing with tests is that they tend to tell the truth about who we really are. If you fail your math test, it it reveals, really, that you aren't very good at math. Or at least it reveals that you didn't do your homework. Tests tell the truth. And so there's a dark side to this whole Sabbath principle, too. And we see that in this initial story. In Exodus 16, some of the people didn't believe that their sixth-day supply would be sufficient for their family's needs. So they went out looking again for manna on the seventh day. And God saw that, and he was not happy. He said to Moses in Exodus 16, 28 to 29, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So failure to keep the seventh day solemn rest was understood by God as an act of rebellion and unfaith. Nahum Sarnas is here that the shape of the story suggests that not keeping God's commandments and teachings involves unbelief, close quote. So this whole seventh day solemn rest thing is a trust test. 
And if you engage it properly, it grows your faith in God. But if you don't engage it properly, if you fail the test, as it were, then God sees that and makes decisions about the content of your faith. It says to him, you don't trust me. You don't believe that I will provide for you. You you think this all depends on you. You think you're a self-made man or woman. You think that you can set aside my ways and my commands in order to work your way into peace, prosperity, and security. And so the Sabbath, the seventh day solemn rest, it's like a giant trust test woven into the time cycle that governs the universe in general and God's people in particular. This story in Exodus 16 introduces that idea. And of course, that idea will grow and grow and grow over the course of the Old Testament. Eventually, we're going to learn about Sabbath years and and Jubilee years. So this cycle of seven is going to take on a central prominence in the story of God's people in the Old Testament. So we've got a story, we've got a principle, we've got a cycle and a test. And then in Exodus 20, we see all of this communicated and codified into law. The fourth commandment given in Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, reads as follows. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, closed quote. Now, if you're reading this commandment in Hebrew, the first thing you would notice is that it begins with the seventh letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hetwav, Zion. Zion is the seventh letter of the alphabet and the first letter in this commandment. So it starts with a seven theme and it ends with a seven theme. It says that the rationale for this observance is the fact that God himself rested on the seventh day. So Sabbath is rooted in and connected to the idea of creation. And of course, you were probably already suspecting that anyway. Even though Exodus 16 doesn't mention the creation story, the whole six days of work followed by one day of rest was already pointing in that direction. Now, the creation story, many Bible scholars will say, is actually intended to be a sort of Bible in miniature. It is a very carefully crafted narrative. The opening verse, Genesis 1-1, has precisely seven words. That's not an accident. The creation narrative is, of course, divided into seven days. And seven times in that story, the reader hears the words, Vayomer Elohim, then God said. So, there are a lot of sevens, and they all seem to be pointing and moving us forward towards the seventh day. But, the seventh day in the creation story is unique. It's the only day in the story that isn't time delineated. All the other days, day one, day two, three, four, five, six, all those days have a beginning and an end. There was evening and there was morning, the first day or the second day and so forth, but not the seventh day. The seventh day stands outside of time almost. It is not time delineated. And that suggests that this initial cycle is pointing towards a much larger cycle that will finally culminate in an eternal rest unto God and an entirely whole and good creation. So, 
even though Genesis 3 introduces a challenge to the goodness of creation, and that goodness, by the way, is explicitly stated, guess how many times? Seven times, seven times. God says, this is good. So even though Genesis 3 introduces a challenge to the goodness of creation, we've already been led to suspect that really Genesis 1 was just the start of something. God has a bigger plan and it will be able to account for whatever damage and difficulties are caused by human failures and shortcomings. God will keep working until we arrive at the eternal seven, at the ultimate end of the process. So all of that is hinted at in the creation story. And then all of that is worked out over the course of the Bible. But again, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to Exodus 20 and look at the command itself. We've noticed the beginning and the end, the seven theme. Those are the bookends, as it were. Now let's look at the law that encloses the symbolism and meaning. In the command itself, the people are told to remember the Sabbath and to keep it. Now, those terms are probably meant to interpret each other, meaning that to remember it is to keep it. To keep it is to remember it. In fact, when Moses repeats the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, he he says this one a little bit differently. In Deuteronomy 5.12, he says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. So that gives us three overlapping words. To remember it is to keep it and observe it. Then verse 9 in Exodus 20 basically repeats what we saw in Exodus 16. Work for six days and then have a solemn rest to the Lord on the seventh day. Verse 10 goes on to say that we mustn't grant ourselves this solemn rest by imposing work on our slaves and servants. The solemn rest should be made available to everyone. So we need to think about others while we're thinking about God. Then in verse 11, for the first time ever explicitly, this idea of seventh day solemn rest is tied back to the creation narrative. The Bible says, for in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, so that's why this is all happening on the seventh day, because that's the pattern that God modeled for us in creation. He worked for six days and then he rested on the seventh day. So God's people are required by this law that we encounter here in Exodus 20 to maintain this seven-day cycle. It's supposed to be part of their witness to the world. The book of Exodus makes that explicit in Exodus 31, verse 13. God tells Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I the Lord, sanctify you, closed quote. So the seven-day cycle with work for six days and a solemn rest on the seventh, that was not just a law, it was also a sign. It was a visible statement. Hebrew scholar Nahum Sarna explains the content of that visible statement. He says, its observance is a declaration of faith, an affirmation that Israel is a holy nation, not inherently, but by an act of divine will that the relationship between God and Israel is regulated by a covenant, and that the universe is wholly the purposeful product of divine intelligence, the work of a transcendent being outside of nature and sovereign over space and time. Closed quote. So observing this seven-day pattern of six days of work followed by a day of solemn rest to Yahweh, that said something to a watching world. 
and the world was watching. This seven-day cycle was totally unique in the ancient world. We forget that. It's, it's not like the Amorites or the Hittites were also pausing every seventh day for rest and worship. Not at all. Almost all ancient societies organized their time around the cycles of the moon. And of course, this seven-day cycle did not harmonize with the cycles of the moon. There are 29.53 days in a lunar cycle. So four sets of seven, four Jewish weeks would not perfectly align with the lunar cycle. You'd be off by a day and a half after the first month. And so the point is the Jewish Sabbath cycle would always be out of step with everyone else's time cycle in the ancient world. If you were a Jew, your pagan neighbor would look at you and wonder, why are you lying around today? Why is your business closed today? What's wrong with you? Are you lazy or something? And you would have the chance to say, no, I'm not lazy. I'm thankful. I'm dependent. I'm trusting in Yahweh God. And so today I'm engaged in solemn rest because God made the universe in six days and he rests on the seventh day and he told me to do the same. So keeping the Sabbath was kind of like pre-evangelism in Old Testament times, or at least it was supposed to be. And that's why, incidentally, when the Sabbath cycles were neglected, both the weekly and the yearly and the even bigger Jubilee cycle, when those cycles were neglected, God took over and imposed a giant Sabbath cycle on the people of Israel in terms of the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile was for 70 years. It was a 10 times Sabbath cycle. And the Old Testament itself interprets this as a massive Sabbath cycle in lieu of the Sabbath cycles they had neglected. So 2 Chronicles 36 verses 20 to 21 says, He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. So the he there, we're talking about Babylon. Babylon, the authorities in Babylon took the Jews into exile. And they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Listen, verse 21. This was done to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Close quote. So the chronicler says that the king of Babylon was used by God basically to impose a massive, very public and very humiliating Sabbath cycle on the people of God because they had been neglecting this aspect of their witness. They'd been failing the Sabbath test. And, and so God sent them to summer school for 70 years. And of course, that's why in Nehemiah, when, when Israel's back in the land after the exile and Nehemiah finds people buying and selling on the Sabbath, he goes absolutely bananas or what looks like bananas to our eyes, he berates the leaders and elders of the people. He shouts at them. And he says, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Close quote, Nehemiah 13, 17 to 18. So Nehemiah says, we just got out of summer school or Sabbath jail or whatever you want to call it. And now you're doing this again? What is wrong with you people? So if you know the story, then he commands the guards to lock up the market area on the Sabbath day. And he says that he's going to arrest anyone who tries to do business on the Sabbath. He, he says he's going to lay hands on them in verse 21. He's going to rough them up. That's, that's pretty extreme. 
unless you've come to understand the Babylonian exile as a massive Sabbath cycle imposed by God on the people of Israel precisely for failing in this aspect of their covenant obligations. So Sabbath is pretty important in the Old Testament. It was an exercise of trust. It was a way of building and maintaining their faith and their identity. And it was part and parcel of their witness to the world. It was an absolutely crucial aspect of what it meant to be the people of God in the Old Testament. And so when we move into the New Testament, we're, we're actually a little bit surprised that rigorous Sabbath keeping, which we think should be a good thing, actually becomes a bone of contention between Jesus and the Pharisees. It, it almost seems at first like maybe Jesus is on the wrong side of this one given everything that we've just seen as we've walked through the Old Testament. And, and in general, Jesus was all about tightening the law, not loosening the law, right? So, for example, in Matthew 5, 27 to 28, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So that's a, that's a much higher bar. There's, there's Jesus doing his Jesus thing. He's, he's tightening the standard. He's, he's bringing us right to the heart of the matter. But with respect to the Sabbath, he, he seems to think that, that all this enthusiasm of the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees in particular, is, is misguided. They've, they've tightened things up, but they've tightened in the wrong direction. They have a certain zeal, to be sure, but not according to knowledge, if we could steal a phrase from later in the Bible. So what happens is that Jesus begins to come into conflict with the religious leaders of his day as to the right way to observe the Sabbath. Mark 3, 1-6 provides a perfect illustration. The text says, Again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, that would be the religious leaders, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, to the Jewish leaders, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him, closed quote. So Jesus saw the Sabbath as a gift, not a burden. He saw it as a time to pursue the things that make for life. He saw it as a creation event, not a time to fuss over man-made regulations and restrictions. And to be clear, he doesn't seem to throw his ideas, his interpretation into the ring as, you know, one more viewpoint to be considered. Rather, he understood his interpretation as the definitive last word on the matter. He says in Luke 6, 5, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, close quote. So Jesus says, I'm the boss of the Sabbath. I decide what it means, and I decide how it ought to be observed, and you guys are doing it wrong. Now, Jesus said something else here about the law in general that bears directly in this discussion. He said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Close quote. So, did Jesus abolish the Sabbath law? I think the answer to that would have to be no. No, Jesus didn't abolish the Sabbath law. Jesus 
fulfilled the Sabbath law. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. What does that mean? R.T. France is actually very helpful here. He says, Among the many nuances suggested for pleurosi, fulfill, the following are the main options. A, to accomplish or obey. B, to bring out the full meaning. C, to complete, to bring to its destined end. By giving the final revelation of God's will to which the Old Testament pointed forward and which now transcends it. Closed quote. So, applied to the Sabbath law, that would mean that Jesus is saying that he will, first of all, obey or keep the Sabbath the way it was supposed to be kept. The Pharisees were obsessed with the letter of the law, and and they even made new laws to protect what they thought the original law was all about. They had 39 categories of prohibited labor on the Sabbath. That's where all their energy was going. But Jesus understood the spirit of the law. He knew what God had really been looking for. And of course, only he could know that because he alone was God in the flesh. This claim actually to know the heart behind the law was actually an implicit claim to divinity. Jesus was saying, I know what this is about. So watch me and do what I do. So Jesus was the ultimate Sabbath keeper. He went to synagogue. He participated in word ministry and he healed people. He, he helped people. He set people free from their bondage. He pursued good things. He pursued life-giving things. Remember, Sabbath is connected to creation and wholeness and goodness. So Jesus did good on the Sabbath because that's what the principle of Sabbath is really all about. So Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath, first of all, in terms of keeping it the right way. And then secondly, he fulfills the Sabbath in terms of bringing out its full meaning. Again, that was the nub of the conflict with the Pharisees. Jesus didn't agree with their exegesis of the Sabbath, so he redirected the conversation. He brought out the full, real, authentic meaning. They thought it was just about not doing stuff. But Jesus brought out the positive side that they had completely neglected. And and then thirdly, Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath in terms of completing it. That is, he brought this whole line of Old Testament anticipation to an end. And he brings us now into that which ultimately transcends it. He does the work that allows all those who trust in that work to enter the ultimate and eternal rest of God. That's the big idea in the New Testament with respect to Sabbath. And that's why when Jesus dies on the cross, he says, it is finished. It is finished. The work is done. This is the last great recreative cycle of God. An eternal rest now lies open and available before us through faith and trust in that finished work of Christ. And in fact, that's what the apostles are talking about in the New Testament epistles. They don't spend any time at all fussing over Sabbath law. Rather, they are only and exclusively interested in the theological symbolism and the ultimate Sabbath rest that is now available because of Jesus Christ. So, for example, Hebrews 4, 1-11 says this, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. 
Verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying, through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Close quote. So here in this passage, the apostle seems to be saying that not every Jewish person raised on Old Testament Sabbath observances appears to have received the message. The message of Sabbath did not benefit them because they didn't do what the message was telling them to do. They didn't join themselves to the Lord of the Sabbath through faith. Had they done that, they too would have entered the ultimate rest of God. But we who have believed have entered that rest, and you should believe. You should therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So the Sabbath was a sign. It was a sermon, you could even say, that was calling on people to put their trust in the finished work of God through Jesus Christ so as to enter into the ultimate and final rest that still awaits us in the future. It's it's here now for all those who believe, but it's something that we are looking forward to entering into. That's what Hebrews says. And, and then that's also, that's the note that the Bible ends on in the book of Revelation. I'm sure you've noticed the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, are filled with creation imagery. We have, we have the tree of life. We have the river of life. We have creation restored. We have tears wiped away. We have that perfect intimacy between God and human beings. It's a new Eden, it, but, but even better, it's, it's like the detour of sin and rebellion has been totally obliterated and things are back the way they were always supposed to be. That's the eternal rest. And we only get there by trusting in the finished work of Christ. So that's where the Sabbath story ends. That's, that's where this thread lands, you might say, in terms of the Bible as a whole and in terms of Christian theology as a whole. So before we get to some practical application, we've covered a lot of ground. So let's just try and summarize what we've seen so far. I think there are seven distinct ways we can think about the Sabbath. I'll mention them in the order that we met them. First of all, the Sabbath is a principle. Even before it becomes a law, there is this principle of seven. Things are wired for this cycle of seven that we discover in the Bible. People do better when they can work for six days and then rest for one. Animals do better on that same cycle. Even fields we discover later in the Bible do better on that cycle. So there's a principle of seven that seems to be woven into the very fabric of creation. 
So even before we get into the idea of law, it would seem wise and prudent to be aware of this principle. So that's the first thing. There's a Sabbath principle. But then also, and secondly, there is a Sabbath law. In a fallen world, people tend to do a poor job of paying attention to principles. So God puts a fence around this one, you might say. He kind of electrifies the fence even because it's really important for his people to exemplify the Sabbath principle and the later the, the fullness of the Sabbath metaphor. We'll get into that in just a minute. But for now, we have a principle, we have a law. And then thirdly, the Sabbath is also a test. It's a, it's a test of trust in Exodus 16. And it functions throughout the Bible as a test of faith. It reveals where people are at in their relationship with the Lord. God reads the test scores, as it were, again and again and again in the Bible and acts accordingly. Fourthly, the Sabbath is a principle, it's a law, it's a test, and an exercise. It's an opportunity for God's people to grow in their understanding of who God is and who they are. So when the people keep the Sabbath, they grow. As Machir said, it triggers the image of God in them. And it reveals the character of God to them. Isn't that great? But then when they don't observe the Sabbath, a Sabbath might be imposed on them by God. That's a form of training too, right? The, the Babylonian exile was an imposed Sabbath that was intended to rebuke, chasten, and refine the people of God. So the Sabbath is a principle. Sabbath is a law, the Sabbath is a test, and the Sabbath is an exercise. And then fifthly, the Sabbath is a witness. It was one of the main reasons why Jewish people stuck out in the ancient world. Everyone else was on a lunar cycle while the Jews were on this weird seven-day cycle, and it caused them to be out of step. It, it made it clear that they had different priorities and different allegiances and of course, that was the point. They, they did have those. And, and so that oddity was engineered as a sort of pre-evangelistic Greece. It created a distinction that needed to be explained. So it was a witness. And then sixthly, it was a gift. That was, that was the special, that was the unique contribution of Jesus. By the time of Jesus, the Sabbath had become a burden. The Pharisees had learned from the disasters of the Old Testament. They saw what happened when people neglected the Sabbath. So they went all the way into the ditch on the other side of the road. They imposed so many regulations that the Sabbath became unbearable to people. It was debilitating and stifling. It became a, a display of your piety instead of a chance to explore the things that make for life. So Jesus came along and exploded that legalistic, life-killing spirit. He said that the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. It was a gift. And if it didn't feel like a gift, then you weren't doing it right. At the end of your solemn rest, if you don't feel more human, more alive, and much closer to your creator, then you've missed something. And you need to look more closely at the example and model provided by Jesus. And then lastly, the Sabbath is a metaphor. It's a sign pointing us forward toward the ultimate rest of God. That's what we were talking about in Hebrews 3 and 4. All right, so that's the end of the Sabbath storyline in the Bible. But before we close, I want to try and anticipate some of the common questions that people ask about the Sabbath. Sabbath day questions are still pretty common in the church. And sometimes they can even get a little heated because we all want to be obedient to what we see in the scriptures. And the problem is the Sabbath thread in the scriptures is so thick and it undergoes so much development and expansion 
that it can actually be hard to know exactly what we're supposed to do with that when we come to the end of the story. So let me see if I can help. Here are what I imagine would be the three most common questions about the Sabbath for New Testament believers trying to figure this all out today. So question number one, if Sabbath is such a big deal, why do almost all Christians do church on Sunday rather than Saturday? Let's start there. I think that's the most obvious question. Now, to be fair, there are a few Christian groups that meet on Saturdays. The Seventh-day Baptists come to mind and the Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, some people would argue that those groups are cults, that they're outside the mainstream of Christianity, but that's a discussion for another day. Regardless, the fact remains that the vast majority of Christians, 99.999% of Christians throughout the ages, have recognized Sunday as the main day for gathered worship. And we see that all the way back in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 20, the church was already gathering on the first day of the week. Acts 20 verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Closed quote. So there we have, we have the church gathered on the first day of the week for breaking of bread, for hearing messages. All that happens on the first day of the week, right back in New Testament times. And then again, in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, we see the Apostle Paul assuming that same rhythm for gathering for corporate worship. He says in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So there Paul's talking about a special offering that was going to be taken up for the poor in Jerusalem. But the point is, he assumes that the first day of the week is the day that the church will be gathering for worship. So right in the pages of the New Testament, we see this transition. The early church seems to have understood early on that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead marked a decisive turning point in the creative work of Almighty God. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. All the Gospels make this point. Luke 24 says, On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb and when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. All the Gospels make that point explicitly. The resurrection of Jesus Christ took place on the first day of the week. And all the apostles understood that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead changed everything. It brought all the cycles and storylines of the Old Testament to a decisive and climactic end. It was a game-changing event. And it effectively bumped the worship of the covenant community from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. The Old Testament worship clock was set to the story of creation. The New Testament worship clock is set to the story of new creation and ultimate creation through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. So that's why Christians worship on the first day of the week, because we are new creation people. Hallelujah. That leads to our second question. Is the Christian Lord's Day a sort of New Testament Sabbath? So should we just take all the Old Testament Sabbath laws and lift them up and then apply them now to the Christian Lord's Day? That's a good question. And, and it's a more common question. While there have been very few Christians throughout history who have wanted to keep the main day of worship on Saturday, there have been a more substantial few who have thought that all that really changes is the day. The Lord's Day is just the Old Testament Sabbath 
on a new day. And, and, and that language, while it was, we have no record of it actually in the early church, you do start hearing it, to be fair. You do start hearing it in certain streams of the Reformation, particularly the English Reformation and the Puritans. And so it's something that became for a season quite common in North America. So is the Christian Lord's Day, is our Sunday really just a new day for the Sabbath? And, and, and should we take all those laws pertaining to the Sabbath and just drop them now into our Christian Lord's Day? Well, there are two problems with that as far as I can see. The first is that nowhere in the Bible is the Lord's Day ever referred to as a Sabbath. Nowhere. The, the Sabbath is a sign associated with the Old Covenant. But Christians are brought into relationship with God through a new covenant in Jesus' blood. And even in the old covenant, we are warned that the new covenant will be different. So Jeremiah 31, 31 to 32 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord, close quote. So the new covenant is going to be new. And Jesus warned us about putting new wine into old wineskins. The new covenant will require new forms and structures. Christianity is not Judaism plus Jesus. It is a whole new creative work of God. So we can't just slap Old Testament concepts onto New Testament worship, not unless we're told to. And as I said, we never are. So that's my first concern here. My second concern here is the idea that anything in the new covenant would be governed and regulated by law. Remember, the law was added later. And Paul says the law was added because of transgression. The law was a tutor until we should come to maturity. But the new covenant believer is not under the law. Rather, he or she is led by the Spirit. Now, that teaching is all over the New Testament, but we see it particularly in Galatians chapter 3 and 4. So in Galatians 3.23 and following, the Apostle Paul says, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God, closed quote. He goes on to say at the conclusion of this argument, this is Galatians 5, 18. It's a long argument. It's an important point. Galatians 5, 18. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Close quote. So the New Testament believer in Jesus has a new heart and a new spirit. They are filled with the Spirit of Jesus, 
and being helped now from the inside out to live in a way that honors God. The law was just a temporary tutor. It was just supposed to keep you in a place that you wouldn't have stayed in on your own, right? But we don't need that anymore because we've read the story. We've met the person. We've put our faith in the work of Christ. We've received the deposit of our eternal rest. So we're spirit people now, and we don't need the guardianship of the law. So applied to the idea of worship, I would say that I don't think there's a warrant for any sort of legalistic spirit with respect to how we observe the Lord's Day. I get very nervous around those people who are sure that the Sabbath laws of the Old Testament preclude all kinds of activities on the Lord's Day, right? The the people who say, you know, there can be no grass cutting, no ice skating, no playing catch with your kids, no long walks, no smiling, nothing. Well, that kind of sounds like the Pharisees that Jesus was always at odds with. That's a lot of law for people who are led by the Spirit. Now, on the other hand, I also get nervous around folks who say, oh, okay, well, since there's no law, I guess I can do whatever I want. I can go to church or not go to church. I, I, can, I can maybe go to church for 55 minutes on Saturday night and then spend all, all day Sunday watching Netflix if I want. That's fine because I'm not under the law, so I can do whatever I want. Uh, well, that doesn't sit quite right either. See, as we move from Old Testament law to New Testament spirit, in the Bible, we don't see people doing less or, or doing different. We tend to see them doing more for better reasons. That's the typical movement, right? So think of tithing, for example. Another thing that changes as we move from Old Testament to New Testament. As we leave behind the law of tithing in the Old Testament, we don't see New Testament believers saying, oh, finally, now that I'm not under the law, I can give whatever I want. In fact, I can give nothing if I want because I'm not under the law, I'm under the Spirit. No. In fact, all the stories of giving in the New Testament are stories of how much more. People were selling their houses. Barnabas sold his property. People were giving everything they had because they were so overwhelmed with gratitude. The the, the logic in the New Testament is clearly, if you were happy to give 10% under the Old Covenant with its lesser graces, then how much more should you be happy to give now? You see, when you drop your training wheels, as it were, the, the goal is to ride faster and without the restraint of those old helps. You don't need those training wheels anymore. But you're still going to ride upright. That's the whole point. But now with those wheels off, you can go further and faster down the road. That's the idea here. So applied to worship, I think a a New Testament spirit-filled believer in Jesus is going to want to do more of that whole solemn rest thing. They're going to want more time with God, more time in worship, more time exploring what it really means to be human, and and more time trying to understand the creative work of God in Christ. More, not less. And that's what we see in the New Testament. The New Testament believers are meeting day by day, Acts 2 says, in large groups and small groups. So they're meeting, you know, all week long and twice on Sundays. That's the that's the sense that you get. They have that how much more thing going on, having let go of the training wheels of the law. So no, I don't think we want to bring the Old Testament Sabbath laws and apply them to New Testament worship on the Lord's Day. But that doesn't mean that there isn't anything 
that we can learn from the Sabbath storyline in the Old Testament. I, I love how J. Alec Montier finds the right balance. He, he threads the needle here. Reflecting back on the story that began in Exodus 16, he says, while we must take note of the fact that the New Testament never quotes the fourth commandment, and Colossians 2.16 rules out any legalistic approach to the question of Sabbath observance, nevertheless, we must be careful to take account of the rather wonderful and deeply theological understanding of the Lord's Day given here in Exodus, closed quote. I think that is very well said. Let's pay attention to the deep theological realities, but then let's apply them in a non-legalistic, led by the Spirit kind of way. Right? Praise the Lord. Sign me up for that. Our final question then I think would be this, third question. Is there a Sabbath principle that still remains in effect in some way? If so, how so? So I, I think we've settled the idea that the Sabbath law should not just be picked up from Saturday and dropped down onto Sunday. I, I, I don't know how you'd even get there, though I recognize that some people do. But, but even if we, if we dismiss that idea, is there a Sabbath principle that, that still remains in effect? Remember, the law came after the principle. So take away the law. Do we still have a principle? And if so, how do we apply that? I think Douglas Stewart is helpful here. He, he says, the underlying principle remains, as indicated in Jesus' teaching and Paul's. The person who works endlessly and or makes others do so oppresses himself and others in violation of this law, close quote. And that's the irony. I like how Douglas Stewart puts principle and law together there. Uh, he, he says, really, it's the person led by the Spirit who ultimately honors the principle behind the law. And the Apostle Paul said the same thing in Romans 3, verse 31. The Apostle Paul, who argued that those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law, he, he says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Close quote. So, a Spirit-led person is, is not working all the time. And a spirit-led person is not trying to establish their worth through their work. They understand what this is all about. They lean into what's really going on here. A spirit-led person is resting in the finished work of Christ. A spirit-led person is trusting God, obeying God, enjoying God, delighting in God every minute of every day, seven days a week and twice on Sunday. And not even death can threaten that sacred communion. Not for the true believer. Death will only bring us closer as we continue to move farther in and further up forever and ever and ever. Amen. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to this special excursus episode of Into the Word. I hope we've explored this Sabbath topic. Obviously, there are things we couldn't get to. You could probably talk for 10 hours about this topic. It's such a thick thread, but it was marvelous to have the opportunity to explore it a little further with you. If you are interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca. And you can also connect with us on Facebook, and it would be great if you did. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. I hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again real soon, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. <laughs>